What's up, boys and girls? It's all my misfits around the world. I'm your host, Rampage the Misfit, and you're tuned in to Misfit Minded, where I bring you everything movie and music related. Today is Thursday, May 30th, and it's going to be a good day today. Uh, Not only are the Warriors about to destroy the Raptors, not only do I get to see one of my favorite movies tonight, um, but I also just had a great conversation with a surprise guest. Um, Before I get into that, you know, it's Throwback Thursday, where I go into my favorite movies uh, that have come out um, in the past, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. This today is a special episode for a movie that came out 40 years ago, 40 years ago. And if I'm recommending it to you, you guys know that it means that uh, it still holds up. It's still a classic. It's still a gem. Um, And the guest I have today is screenwriter um, and author Joseph McBride who wrote the cult classic Rock and Roll High School starring the Ramones. If you haven't seen this thing it is like Animal House in a high school. It stars PJ Souls who you might remember from Halloween or Stripes or Carrie. She was the 70s high school bombshell. Um, Other people include you know Dick Miller has a nice cameo uh not a lot of like name actor name actors or actresses but uh we talk about it about why that was such a key element to this film among other things i had a nice hour-long conversation with joe mcbride he couldn't have been more awesome guest um so i'm going to lead with that um because you know that was just so amazing that i got to ask questions about the ramones and just things that i've been wondering about the movie Ever since I've seen it, um, you can check out the movie now on uh, Tubi, which is an app, or uh, Hoopla, which if you have a library card, it is free, and you get to rent movies just straight from the app, and you can cast it to your TV. Um, but yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with screenwriter Joseph McBride. So, uh First of all, thank you for coming on to my show. <laughs> yeah, it's an honor, honor to, to talk here. with you. Um, just for to introduce yourself. Um, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> yeah, I'm Joe McBride. Uh, Joseph McBride. I'm author of 21 books, uh, mostly on films. I've written biographer, biographies of Frank Capra and John Ford and Steven Spielberg, and three books on Orson Welles, among other things. And I consider myself a recovering screenwriter. Uh, I did uh, screenplays for 18 years. Uh, a, a number, the ones that I enjoyed the most were um, American Film Institute Life Achievement Award program oh, nice. CBS. I did five of those, and Fred Astaire, Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra, John Huston, Lillian Gish, and I really enjoyed nice. those. And they came out well. And the film that I wrote that uh, lasted has lasted as rock and roll high school as one of the writers in that and uh, it's become a cult favorite and really happy to know that a lot of people like it including young people even today <laughs> oh yeah i definitely like want to get into that in a second yeah um but first i just wanted to ask um how did you start off that career um and like specifically i guess getting into film like what interested you well i was a, a film, sort of a film buff as a kid in Milwaukee growing up, but then in, um, I wanted to be a, I was always a journalist from 1960 onward. I published my first uh, paid article and uh, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to be a, a novelist and journalist. And then I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I became interested in film seriously. I took a film course and mm-hmm. I remember the day, September 22nd, 1966, I saw oh, wow. Orson Welles' Citizen Kane in class that shows you how much I 
how much it meant to me. I remember the day. Mm. Uh, it changed my life because I, I suddenly realized how great films could be and how um, you know tremendous it was. This young man who was only 24 had made this amazing film, and he was from Wisconsin, which didn't hurt. And I thought, well, you know, uh, let me try to make write films and direct films and, and write about films. And so I started doing that, and um, I was running a campus film society soon after that uh, gave me the chance to bring films to campus back then without DVDs uh, and all that. You had to rent films at 16 millimeter, which meant you had to raise money to do it. <laughs> right. and so that was, uh, we had a lot of films. We had 35 film societies on campus. It was a great period for film. Oh, wow. Society. And we had an archive still there at the state historical society. And so it was, I was watching films all day long and writing about films. And so I started writing a book on Wells because I realized there wasn't a good one in English. Okay. And uh, I spent about four years doing that. And I was writing screenplays too. I wanted to uh, learn that. And I, there wasn't a course on it, so I taught myself how to do it and uh, started shooting little films in Super 8, which was expensive because you had to raise the money to buy the film back then. Today, right. you can, if you have a camera, it doesn't cost anything to shoot a film. Mm-hmm. But um, so I was shooting films, and, and I was writing scripts that were getting more and more um, uh, ambitious. They started as I did a lot of short scripts, and then I thought, okay, now I'll try some feature-length scripts. And and um, the Wells book got published. And in 1970, I went to LA for the first time and met Orson Welles. It was kind of a fluky. Thing I didn't realize he was there. I was, I was there to interview John Ford, who's my favorite director. Okay. And cool. I was doing a book on him with Mike Wilmington of Madison, and um, uh, through Peter Bogdanovich, the young critic, uh, of course, I yeah. called him, and, and he was recruiting people for um, Orson Welles' film, which was about to start shooting The Other Side of the Wind. Uh-huh. And Wells, Wells put me in the film. He knew my writing because I'd been publishing pieces on him in magazines, and I didn't know he had read them, but he had. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, uh, so they I, put me in this film, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of wanted to ask about that, too, because um, I did see that. Um, what was that like? Because like you just said about, you know, seeing Citizen Kane and, you know, this, like, genius, um, especially, like, at a time that was uh, later in his career. Uh, what was that like? Well, that was an amazing experience. I, I wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, mm-hmm. uh, which came out in 19, uh, 2007. And so I've, I've written a lot about that film. Uh, and uh, it finally came out last year. It took forever. It was a crazy mm-hmm. uh, situation because of uh, mm-hmm. he started with his own money and then he uh, needed more money and he went uh, made a deal with the Iranian investors. Yeah, a great uh, documentary too about that on Netflix that I was watching a little bit of. <clears throat> oh yeah, you saw that. Um, yeah, they, they yeah. love me when I'm dead. Yeah, yeah, it tells the story pretty well of uh, all the tr- trouble that he ran into financially, um, legally, and politically in trying to get this film finished, and it was sort of stuck for a long time. We shot it for more than five years, and uh, it was a fabulous experience for me and everybody yeah. else who worked on it, but terribly frustrating then when he had trouble getting it out. And I tried in the 90s to get it produced and finished, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I actually, nobody in Hollywood wanted the film except Showtime. Showtime was interested. <clears throat> I had the idea of going to a cable network, which was sort of unusual then. Mm-hmm. And uh, they couldn't. Well, what happened was Bogdanovich and Oya Kodar, who was Wells's companion, who inherited his ownership of the film, mm-hmm. um, fired me. Then when they thought they didn't need <laughs> me, and I, which was not fair, but I walked away from it because I figured I didn't want to cause any more trouble. Yeah. Then the deal immediately fell through. So if I'd been involved with it, it might have been out long, long ago. But it came out in 2018 <laughs> that uh, uh, Peter and Frank Marshall and uh, Philip Jan Rimza produced it. It took a tremendous amount of effort, so I'm actually mm-hmm. glad I got fired because I wouldn't have <laughs> wanted to spend all those years, uh, uh, you know, fighting legal battles yeah. and stuff to get it out. But anyway, it came out triumphantly, beautifully uh, edited and preserved, and um, uh, I think it's in the spirit Wells intended, and it's a very ambitious film by Wells about Hollywood, and so I'm very 
very happy it came out. It's on Netflix. Everybody can watch it. There's also a great second documentary that it's kind of hard to find on Netflix called mm-hmm. uh, A Final Cut for Orison, 40 Years in the Making, which is right. about the post-production period. If you're interested in filmmaking, oh, wow. it's, really, it's good to watch. I have to check that one out, too. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I mean, like people getting fired. It, it seemed like that was like a common occurrence on that uh, production. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. He he um, he fired the sound man after the first day because the guy interrupted a take that Peter and I were doing. <laughs> we were overlapping dialogue, and the guy said, "Hold it, we have overlapping dialogue." And Wells said, "We always have overlapping dialogue." And, <laughs> and uh, some of the younger people left, and uh, Rich Little was either fired or left. It's hard yep. to know different opinions on that. But um, uh, he had a loyal young crew um, stuck with him and, and put up with it. Gary Graver, his cameraman, was extremely loyal and devoted his whole life to it and unfortunately died before it came out. But mm-hmm. um, he had more trouble in post-production uh, trying to keep Edited. the rights and well he he never he he did edit 40 41 minutes of it <laughs> but he had to steal the work print from a laboratory in Paris oh, yeah. because the, the Iranians and he were having <laughs> battles over the ownership and uh so he didn't have access to the negative and um so it finally there was a court battle and finally it was all settled uh it took 9 years of uh, uh wow. legal wrangling in in the you know, in, in the 2000s to get that finished. Yeah, I, I, I saw the film and, um, you know, I, I checked out the documentary too and I was kind of just like, you know, I don't know how they're going to, how can the documentary be as like uh, frenetic and and crazy as the movie is and it, it really is in the same spirit, I think, of the movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they tried to do it in the Wellesian style. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was really cool. Um how do, you, how do you like the movie itself? What did you think of the movie? Um, I I liked it. Um, just uh, like you said, like the style of it, um, and the documentary just adds like you know more layers of it. I think, mm-hmm. um, and the, and the fact that it's kind of like a uh, an autobiography, I guess, of Wells at the time too, <laughs> just yeah. um, makes it work on a, on a whole another level as well. Yeah, to some extent it is, and it's also. It it is and it isn't. I mean, it's about an old director trying to make a comeback in Hollywood. Yeah. It has a lot to do with him, but it's also about a guy who's unlike him, who's a sort of Hemingway character, a macho right. guy, which mm-hmm. Wells was not, and Wells was criticizing and attacking that kind of sensibility. So it's a mixture of things, and but it's a good portrait of Hollywood at a time of great change and uh, historical uh, turmoil, you know, what we call the Easy right. Rider era. It's almost if you were to recreate that film today, it would cost you a hundred million dollars to shoot that. Mm. Do you think um, that was a question I had too? Do you think if the movie was released in that era, that it would have been successful? That's a good question. I think I, at the time I was concerned that it was so avant-garde and like the editing was so fast uh-huh. that the audience might not have been able to keep up with it. It, it would have been more timely, but. Um, now we can keep up with fast editing more because we're used to it. But right. uh, although I, I, some friends of mine and I, uh, I mean, one friend I took to see it got sort of dizzy and, and <laughs> ill watching the film. The editing was so fast, you know, even today. Um, mm-hmm. But it has a kind of a relevance today because of the Me Too movement and, and the, you know, our understanding sure. of se- sexual harassment and politics and the guy in the film, John Huston's character, the old director, is mm-hmm. the real macho, sexist guy, and he's yeah. like a poster <laughs> boy for that. The film was misunderstood a little by some people. They thought that Wells was um, endorsing that kind of behavior, but he's he's actually really criticizing it. Mm-hmm. But it makes it timely in a sense, and it's also historically great to look back on a time period uh when Hollywood changed, you know, the studio system was collapsing and, and younger people, yep. and independent filmmakers were taking over. So that uh, sometimes some perspective helps the film, too. And I think it plays very well. And it got generally very, very good reviews. A lot of uh, a lot of excitement it generated. Yeah, I think he's just like such a fascinating character. Um, and like the movie just speaks to on that level. Um, and so I guess 
transitioning from that a little bit after that era um, into rock and roll high school, it's the 40th anniversary. Um, yeah. And uh, and you co-wrote it. Uh, looking back on it, did you have any idea that it would be such a cult hit? And, um, you know, what do you think of its, like, success? Like, what do you contribute that to? Well, you know, with the Wells film, we all knew that it was important because it was Orson Wells and it was a film, you know, his film about filmmaking. Right. So we knew that this was a film that was going to be watched forever and everything. But with Rock yeah. and Roll High School, we didn't, nobody sat there thinking this could be a cult favorite. We were hoping <laughs> it would be more of a mass market film. Mm-hmm. But you know, the Ramones were never a mass market um, band. They were too strange, you know, and like a lot of radio stations wouldn't play some of their songs because they were dealing with uh, subjects like drug abuse and uh, child abuse and things like that. They're, that's one reason we like them because they're honest and, and uh, irreverent. But um, they had a limited following, and they still do. But the f- people who like them really love them and adore them. So, which which mm. helps make it a cult favorite. And that's their casting really made the film. I mean, you know, if some other band had been in it, it wouldn't have been the same. And but all the elements came together. It was kind of a strange production. I was one of several writers that. I did five drafts, and then they brought in oh, wow. a couple of other guys to do a couple drafts. And so um, the the director had worked on an earlier draft with Joe Dante, another director. And then the director, mm-hmm. Alan Arkish, collapsed during the shooting because it was so uh, physically difficult he to shot, shoot a yeah. big, big musical in three weeks. And, and Joe Dante had to finish directing it. And um, so a lot of people contributed, and... Um, it's one of those strange films that sometimes works because, uh, you know, a lot of uh, different viewpoints came into it and a lot of different talents and sure. and uh, the craziness of the whole production <laughs> actually worked for it. And Alan Arkish, the director, gave it tremendous energy and passion, mm-hmm. which I think helps helps make it play so well. It, it, it doesn't seem dated. A few years ago, my son said, you know, the only dated thing is that it uses vinyl, but vinyl has made it come back, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so the clothes are dated because it's the 70s and it's punk and all, but we like, right. you know, punk punk stuff is still popular, and the Ramones, most of them are dead, unfortunately, but their music lives mm-hmm. on, and I keep hearing it all the time, and, and so the film um, has a lot of following, and you know, a lot of my students tell me it's one of their favorite films. I hope they're telling me the truth. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I can attest because, um, I mean, not only I did a project on the film um, for I'm taking a rock and roll cinema class right now. Oh. I did the semester, and that was one of the films we screened as a class. Okay. And um, just from like uh, the project was more of just a like. Um, an open discussion with just me leading it with another person and just from like the students in the class they they overall seemed like they liked it um, more than some other films in the class so (laughs) good what else did you show Uh... um so we kind of went in chronological order um of course like hard day's night and hell beatles uh showed some elvis movies um jailhouse rock Mm -hmm. um uh, let's see what else. More recently, yeah. School of Rock. We it was one of our last ones we watched, yeah. um, which I think is like pretty in line with uh, the spirit of Rock and Roll High School a little bit. Yeah, it seems like yeah. it's, uh, it's it, a lot of films have been sort of influenced by that. Mm-hmm. There was a film about college campuses which uh, uh, didn't do much business, but the writer the writers told me they were inspired by rock and roll high school, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most irreverent films of its time that, um, there's a book on cult movies and they said it's the only American commercial film in which a major American, uh, institution is destroyed and nobody is punished, meaning the high school gets blown up. Right. And you couldn't, you couldn't make that film today, uh, no. post Columbine, they wouldn't let you do it. But even, even then the major studios wouldn't have made that film. This was the one reason we got away with it. It was Roger Corman, who was an independent filmmaker who made kind mm-hmm. of fringe films that were, uh, more daring in some ways than the studios were. And, uh, Roger loved, the idea of the ending, and I, I, I modeled that on a Wisconsin event uh, in 1970. The students blew up um, 
the Army Math Research Center in Madison, and mm-hmm. uh, which was planning bombing missions for the Vietnam War, and they killed a graduate student, unfortunately, and uh, this was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And I covered that for the Wisconsin State Journal, and it it, it helped end the anti-war movement. Unfortunately, uh, there was a bombing at Greenwich Village too that. Um, it, it turned off a lot of people who were not violent protesters, you know, mm-hmm. and so it helped help Nixon expand the war in Vietnam. And, and so I thought this is counterproductive kind of yeah. uh, radicalism. And so I, I put that in there to show that revolutions, while they're necessary, sometimes they get out of control. And the film, I don't think the director ever totally understood the ending. <laughs> Because they put in a scene that kind of bothered me at the end where the yeah. disc jockey says, if you want this to happen at your school, just give me a call, you know, <laughs> which I wouldn't have put in because that, that seemed to contradict the point I was trying to make. But uh, but it is it does show you that uh, things get really crazy when you have uh, repression. Right. And, and I, I was basing the repression on Catholic school. I went to a Catholic school in Wauwatosa and then Marquette okay. University High School, and they were very strict and repressive. And yeah. that kind of thing leads to uh, rebellion, too. And so that comes across in the film. I went to a Catholic high school as well, uh, so I I could totally see that. Do you think um, the. Which one the did Me- you go to? I went to a Dominican high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah in Whitefish Bay. Um, yeah. Do you think, like, the, the message was was from like the multiple like you know writers and influencers on the film and um I actually kind of wanted to talk about it too like that was something my class picked up on is um just how like you say like it brings kind of an energy having like multiple people's perspectives um yeah. on the film I also like get that from just a story too of like the high school like all the different characters I think really make it uh you know like PJ Souls as Riff Randall um and you know the uh, the Todd the the uh, awkward jock. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, um, it just um, makes it uh, like more real to high school, I guess. Yeah, I put him in there because you know I thought we needed a square foil <laughs> character, and I modeled him on partly myself and some guys that I knew at our school. I, I named him after <laughs> one of our star athletes. He was oh, an nice. athlete, athlete <laughs> or something, but um. He's funny, and then the girls are great. And one thing I, I did that actually was pretty revolutionary, but I didn't talk about it back then, was mm-hmm. uh, to do a female buddy-buddy movie because they were doing all yeah. these uh, male buddy-buddy movies. It was not <laughs> a good period for women in Hollywood. They weren't giving mm-hmm. many good parts to women. But I put in, I said, let's do it about two girls. And so we had these two terrific actresses, P.J. Souls and uh, Day Young, and it's about their friendship. And Day Young is this uh, serious student who gets radicalized. And then PJ is the punk rocker, but she writes the song, so she's very mm-hmm. creative, you know. And um, that made it really interesting. Yeah, so so the characters, they, they seem believable. I mean, we've known people like, like these kids. And mm-hmm. um, then they bring the the uh, Ramones to school and and everything goes crazy and uh then there's this guy eagle bauer which i didn't that's one thing i didn't write the other writers put him in who's sort okay. of the, he's like sergeant bilko yeah. who's an old great old tv series he's the guy the fixer who will do all kinds of semi-legal stuff at the school and he's a funny character you know mm-hmm. and so um it, it has a lively group of people and um uh you know i not to compare it in quality but casablanca is a classic film that was sort of a chaotic production in mm-hmm. which a lot of people contributed, screenwriters, and they didn't sure. quite know where they were going with the story, and you know, a lot of casting changes at the last minute. And it came out to be a, a wonderful film, partly because of all the, you know, the energy of uh, yeah. not knowing what you're, where you're going sometimes, and uh, that seemed to apply to rock and roll high school too. I think, and sometimes productions that go very smoothly don't turn out too well. It's an right. interesting thing about filmmaking, you know. Or even uh, Apocalypse Now is another one too. It's like famously, infamously, <laughs> yeah, uh, troubled production, but it's like a, a perfect film, excellent film. Um, so Good I, I'm point. guessing, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing too the uh, Vince Lombardi high school stuff that came from you as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Wisconsin <laughs> me. 
Yeah. Uh, I worked for Vince Lombardi as a vendor at Milwaukee County Stadium as a kid. Oh, no way. Put myself through high school. And the Packers used to play three games in Milwaukee every year, and I would be the sell hot dogs, and so I saw Vince and the great Bart Starr and those guys playing. And I also worked at Milwaukee wow. Braves games, and um, I was a football fan as a kid during that great period. And then I changed my views when Nixon started using mm-hmm. football metaphors for the war in Vietnam. And I realized that football okay. is a very warlike sport and I turned against it. Mm-hmm. But Vince was known for his hard ass attitudes <laughs> and his, his line, yep. uh, winning isn't everything. It's the only the thing. thing. Yep. So we made that the motto of the school. And, and actually there's a story behind this. I originally called it Ronald Reagan high school. <laughs> <laughs> and he had not become president yet. He was he was oh, aiming to wow. be president. And Roger Corman didn't like uh, making fun of uh, Reagan. Partly he was a neighbor of his, but also uh, <laughs> it was too too edgy because he was running for president. And so oh, he man. said, we got to change it. So I said, okay, Vince Lombardi. And that turned out <laughs> actually really well. Yeah. And then they did a bad sequel many years later. And Reagan had come and gone as president and they called it Ronald Reagan High School. Oh, okay. When it was when it was safe safe to make fun of them, it's more edgy to make fun of somebody when they're in the middle of their career. And mm-hmm. um, I wanted the the kids to have a statue of Reagan that they blow up at the high school, for example. That would have been oh. very political, you know. Yeah. I, I it's mean, a political film, political allegory, but maybe sometimes when you don't get too specific about individual people like that and make it more symbolic, it works better in right. different different circumstances, you know. No, I think I think uh you're right. I think it worked out perfect because and even like my class really picked up on just how, you know, Vince Lombardi represents, you know, the old guard and like you're saying that like super strict and, you know, winning's the only thing, all those like uh those famous like lines that coaches like to say and everything is war. <laughs> yeah. Um and especially when they when they blow it up at the end, you know, you definitely get like they're blowing up that uh, that structure. Um, and even even some people were picking up on like some uh, you know Nazi resemblances too, with like the burning of the records and you know right. how the hall the hall monitors how they're dressed. So I think I think it definitely made it punk to to that they're um, you know are belling against that. Um, and then one thing we were learning about too was just how you know musically the uh, the climate was changing as well with, you know, punk rock becoming a thing and how, uh, you know, major labels were, were getting really scared <laughs> um, yeah. because people were just making their own music and doing it for themselves. And they're kind of just out of touch from the early uh, rock era. Um, were you like aware of that? And like, cause I, feel yeah, like I was a fan movie, of punk rock. I, yeah. I, I wasn't a fan of heavy metal and that kind of stuff. But when I was a kid uh, in 1955, when rock and roll became big, my I had a little friend named Dickie Swearingen in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. still living in Milwaukee. And he was very uh, hip kid, and he turned me on to comic books and rock and roll. And he was into rock the first week when Rock Around the Clock came out. Yeah, uh, we watched that one. We watched that one Bill, as well. Bill, yeah. Well, the Bill Haley uh, record, yeah, which later became... Oh, okay, yeah. There was a movie. Um, yeah. Uh, what was it called? The uh, oh, the one about the high school. They used rock around the clock in there. Um, and anyway, uh, mm-hmm. I was into the rock and roll, and it had a strong beat. And it was relatively simple but strong. And the Ramones re- remind me of that period. You know, where they went back to the basics. But there's their lyrics are very sophisticated. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a teenage lobotomy. Yep. <laughs> uh, slugs and snails are after me. It's it's about pollution and things. And, yeah. And um, they have some amazing lyrics in there. And, and we have a like a 20 minute <clears throat> concert right in the middle of the film, which is pretty amazing. And mm-hmm. I was there that day. We filmed for like 18 hours or something. Uh, it's really great, great to see the Ramones nice. performing over and over again. And, and uh, yeah, uh, we were aware that the punk music was a reaction to a number of things. And uh, mm-hmm. I like the fact you can hear the words, and that's one problem I had with heavy metal. You don't hear right. the, hear the uh, lyrics anymore. And uh, But the, the Nazi references, yeah, I was aware of those, you know, the Nazi book burning. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I saw a documentary 
as part of my research about the 1950s where a disc jockey was burning records. And so that kind of stuff happened. Uh, and, yeah. you know, to, even today, you know, banning books and stuff is still happening, and that's an important issue. And then yeah. um, the hall monitors were added by these other writers, and um, they were deliberately designed as sort of Nazi-type characters, you know. And yeah. The principal uh, we designed as a fascistic character. Ms. She Coldart. was sort of modeled on some uh, of the nuns that, nuns that I had, but she was um, very fascistic in terms of her political demeanor. And so there, it's a very political film, and Roger didn't mm-hmm. mind that at all, um, unlike the studios would have gotten nervous. And, and so I think yeah. the transgressive nature of the film is uh, what you guys are picking up on, and you like that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and another thing, like, uh, I think punk too is just the uh the interactive nature like i love how like you said it's just a concert in the middle of it usually in the rock films that we watch that's the climax of the movie you know is the beatles at the end performing um and that's like the plot is them trying to get to their performance but i love how that's just like in the middle kind of and then at the end you get that uh political statement um I, a lot of it's uh, what they said is called subjective realism, and uh, I think my favorite uh, like showcasing of that was uh, Riff Randall and in, in, uh, you know being high, having that fantasy in her bedroom, <laughs> and I yeah. think it uh, it really captured you know how uh, as a fan you you connect to these artists um, even like if you don't see them just like through your headphones, but then she even gets to meet them and like, you know, they dedicate the song and even like yeah. say, Hey, it's going to be on the next album. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's great like that she gets to be their way. songwriter. Yeah. But uh, you're right. That's a wonderful scene where she's fantasizing there in her room. And uh, Alan Arkish <laughs> based that on a old uh, film, uh, the girl can't help it. There's a scene like mm-hmm. that in there. And, and it's just wonderful. And it's has a sexual tone. Yeah, Roger Corman, Two things I found frustrating. One was he didn't want drugs in the film, and he didn't want oh, sex wow. in the film. It's kind of ironic that he was a little puritanical, but there is <laughs> there is some drug use in the film, as you mentioned, yeah. but, but not much. Um, and that's probably enough. But mm-hmm. I thought the film could have used more sexuality. I had a scene where the sure. girls... There's a scene in the film where the girls are doing uh, gym... Yeah. practice and mm-hmm. and uh i had a scene where the boys are looking in on the uh, gym and, and the girls are suddenly naked and, and, and jumping around and all that in slow mm-hmm. motion and roger didn't want to do that um <laughs> so it has a kind of an innocence it's almost like a disney movie in some ways uh not the kind of movie disney would have made back then but right it, it has a kind of an innocence which kind of works all these <laughs> things kind of worked you know because maybe if it had been more racy it wouldn't have been as effective it has a certain mm-hmm. innocent charm and also the girls are pretty serious they're not bimbos or anything you know right we we, we made them you know kate is a real serious scientist and, and riff is a serious writer and uh and uh all, all that really helps ground the film in something important rather than just uh goofing around you know mm-hmm. well yeah and this is like uh only i think a year after animal house and I, I love Animal House too, but I feel like yeah. if you want more of the TNA, you can watch Animal House, and then you know Rock and Roll High School is like a nice uh, <laughs> like yeah. appetizer for that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We were probably influenced by Animal House, and that had some very funny racy scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were a number. There weren't too many films that we liked. I thought Grease was a really bad film that came out around that time. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's a book on. Um, best musicals of the 70s or just musicals of the 70s and i right. looked it up and rock and roll high school is not even mentioned in the book oh wow which i think is sort of it shows you how we were operating on the fringes we weren't taken seriously yeah. uh because we were a two hundred and eighty thousand dollar film that played it opened in drive-ins and and you know uh neighborhood theaters which uh it flopped initially because Roger Corman didn't realize he had an unusual film in his hands, so he opened it just like any of his other films, and it came and went. And then Siskel and Ebert in Chicago mm-hmm. promoted it, and uh, they liked it. And then a theater in Chicago started showing it as a midnight film, and other theaters started doing that. And it caught on. It, it never made a lot of money, but it, it's been playing for decades on oh, yeah. um, DVDs and you know tapes before that, and 
and all that and it's uh, it was restored again recently it looks beautiful um they put in one line it was the first film ever shown in its entirety on um on uh, what's that there was a, a music channel that uh, uh tv M- that which one um mtv mtv yeah they showed okay. uh, music videos and they showed rock and roll high school and they uh-huh. cut out the line where Tom is walking through the hall and he sees Riff bopping through the hall and he says, I need to get laid. <laughs> so they cut that line, which is sort of, you know, sweet and innocuous teenage yeah. line. And that line was missing for many years and somehow they found it and put it back in the film. Oh, wow. So now you can see it as it was originally intended. You know? But yeah, the ending did... is is uh, is quite remarkable, and uh, mm-hmm. the the TV networks refused the film back then because of the ending. Yeah. And they they told uh, Raj Alan Arkish, the director, that if he filmed an ending where the school doesn't get blown up, they would show it, and he commendably refused to do that. But that's mm-hmm. what makes it unusual, I think. You know. True. Um, do you have any like uh, you said you were there when the Ramones were performing? Do you have any Ramones stories? Were you there on set? From one more of scenes? Well, the funny part, I didn't really talk to them. The day they were performing, it was a madhouse at a theater <laughs> on Sunset Strip, and I was just part uh-huh. of the crowd. But while we were doing the, um, <clears throat> you know, like the ending of the film, which I'm in, <clears throat> excuse me, where the Ramones, um, uh, the kids are blowing up the school, and I'm on the, on the lawn. I'm, I become like the henchman of the principal, and I'm one of the school board members. and Mm-hmm. So I was there for two or three days, and the Ramones were staying in the uh, principal's office. It was a school that had been closed for earthquake retrofitting. And mm-hmm. so the principal's office is where they hung out, and I hung out there too. And uh, you know, there's a lot of waiting around between shots. And so they were watching on a little black-and-white TV. They were watching soap operas. That was their thing, you know. And mm-hmm. I was reading a biography of General MacArthur. <laughs> and <laughs> So I would just say hi to them, and they were nice, sweet guys, but they didn't really talk very much. Uh, they were, if you've seen like documentaries on them, they weren't very mm-hmm. um, articulate. Yeah. Although they were, they they did great songs, but they weren't very uh, sociable. They were, you know, one thing I liked about them was they gave an interview to Rolling Stone at the time and said that um, when they were growing up in Queens, they were considered such weirdos that the nice girls at the school wouldn't go out with them so they would <laughs> break into the local mental hospital and date the schizophrenic girls and take them out <laughs> which I liked you know I could relate to that that's hilarious so they were not sociable articulate guys but uh so I don't have any stories of any big chats with them it would have been interesting right. but you know you know but I was well, around them I think uh, the movie captures their personality well, even though they don't only have like a couple lines. Uh, you know, just the, the, in, in the background, you just hear like "pizza, great." And yeah, then... yeah. Well, some of my favorite lines, yeah, like Joey says, "Rock and roll, high school, yeah. pizza." You know, and I want some. Yeah. But the director. That was funny because when the director hired them he thought they'd be like the Beatles who were very charming and talkative right. in Hard Day's mm-hmm. Night and these guys showed up and they could hardly talk and so the director was <laughs> a little flummoxed but like a good director he decided to use their personalities in the film right. and made that sort of humorous um, that they're they're mm-hmm. really out of it and the manager is stuffing wheat sprouts into Joey's mouth and stuff and, <laughs> and, and the, so those few lines were about all they could manage but it makes it funny you know it does. It makes it like realistic. I feel like to to how they would really be. Um, yeah, Riff Randall, our number one fan. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like I knew like um, a lot of the films that we watched. Um, I I didn't really grow up with rock in my household, so uh, I would we watch some of the movies, and if I liked the movies, I would go back and you know I was on a Beatles kick for that whole unit, uh, and then definitely after Rock Around High School, I just dove into the Ramones and. Um, I, I am a huge fan of their music now. <laughs> um, well, yeah, they're so they, their music is still popular. They never made it into the big time uh, because I mentioned the radio stations wouldn't play them. But mm-hmm. right after Rock and Roll High School, Phil Spector, who is this famous rock producer who went to jail of course, for uh, yeah. uh, involved <laughs> in a killing, um, <laughs> he tried to uh, make them popular by 
he put them in uh, like pastel uh, sport coats, and he kind of cleaned them up a bit, and and he did a an album, and it totally bombed because <laughs> what what they're what people like about them is they're uh, you know black leather jackets, yeah. and the scruffy looking guys, and all that. And so they went back to their old selves, and so they never they were disappointed. They thought rock and roll high school might lead to a movie career, but it didn't. But yeah. there are a couple documentary films. There's one about them on tour around the world, which is good. You can see them performing oh, wow. all over the place, you know. Okay. But um, uh, they live on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, um, you know, why there aren't more movies like this. But I just feel like this is such a unicorn um, in terms of, like, film. Um, and, you know, like, the ones, the movies I do see that are kind of reminiscent, they're either just straight up high school comedies or like rock movies and um biopics seem to be like the thing right now with bohemian rhapsody um there's a beatles beatles movie yeah rocket man i think there's a bruce springsteen one coming out this year um so you think that's just um the state of rock how it is um or just um, well i don't know I, i don't see a lot of these things um i saw bohemian rhapsody but um yeah, biopics are popular, and uh, you know they, they do them on a lot of musicians like Johnny Cash and, and uh, right. Ray Charles, and you know some pretty good films. And um, but this is sort of unusual where you have the guys playing themselves, but it's right. they're not the main characters either. They're uh, it's an ensemble piece, and it's about <laughs> kids, regular kids right. in high school. And the actors were not terribly well known, which kind of helps because when you get big stars, mm-hmm. it sort of distracts sometimes from the from uh, the involvement you have with the characters. But um, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think that generally American films have become very timid and very mainstream. Just generally, they're trying to appeal to huge audiences because the films cost so much and they're greedy and they they want to get the the biggest audience in the world. And so our film was this little, you know, cheap film that – you know, Roger always made a profit off of most of his films, <laughs> but he he wasn't going out for mega bucks, so he could yeah. afford to appeal to a niche market of people who like offbeat subjects and 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 rock and roll and punk. Uh, I mean, the, the main studios were not doing punk films back then because punk was considered a sort of a delinquent kind of thing, which it is, and that's part of the appeal of it. And but they were going for um, you know, Grease is a sort of sanitized film yeah. with um uh, I thought a very bland film and everybody in the film was like 30, 35 years old and everything you know yeah and uh I mean one problem you have with teenage films even in our film the girls he were in their old. 20s yeah know, they're <laughs> older older than regular kids because part of it is the law that <clears throat> if you're working people under 18 you can only work them four hours a day mm-hmm. which is which is difficult so they they almost always cast people who are over 18 and so some of the high school kids look pretty old in some of these films. And, uh, yeah. But in ours, uh, they still looked pretty young, I thought. And um, they didn't have that glossy, <clears throat> you know, Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta look right. um, that that some of the films had back then. And so, the, uh, but it's just, I think it's just a good film. Just It is a one-of-a-kind film, as you say. It's yeah. not the kind of thing you could replicate a moment in time and it's a satirical film and it's uh deals with certain real political events yeah. invoked and uh a real band and um it's just a, a a renegade film and that's what made it good i think you know yeah and i yeah you like uh i know i've read pj Soul's only a couple years younger than uh miss togar yeah, oh, really? um, yeah yeah during filming but i mean she was I didn't kind realize, of yeah she was kind of the go-to high school girl during the seventies anyway. Um, well, she had done Halloween, which was an yeah. influence on us. And, uh, the same, same cinematographer did Halloween, uh, Dean Cundy. And he also yeah. went on to do Jurassic park, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, PJ was in her late twenties and I guess she kind of looks it, but she's still <laughs> really cute and young. Oh, but yeah. Mary Warnoff, I didn't realize she was not that old. Um, she's still around. She's a wonderful actress who plays Miss Togar. She was an Andy Warhol mm-hmm. actress, and she did a lot of indie films. And she's very strikingly beautiful, tall, wow. un- unusual kind of tough uh, actress, you know. 
uh, one of a kind actress, and um, she's not the kind of person that Hollywood would often <laughs> put into films either. You know, right. Even uh, Alan Arkish, too, I was looking up uh, his career. He, he really found uh, TV success, I found. Um, yeah. A lot of, He's a big uh, TV director, yeah. He yeah. Uh, he made a couple of other features that didn't do well, and then he went into TV where he's thrived, and he's he's very active, and he's won Emmy Awards, and, you know, it's his niche that he's done well. Joe Dante, who um, worked on oh, the yeah. story and also did some of the shooting, and he supervised post-production with... Paul Bartel, who was also a director. Joe is Joe went on to a good feature career, made yeah. Gremlins, Gremlins Two, etc. Um, his career is sort of stalled, unfortunately. Um, uh, he's a very quirky individual right. comic filmmaker, and he doesn't fit in with the, the Hollywood bland, you yeah. know, superhero kind of thing that they're doing now. And so he's been having trouble getting some of his pet projects off the ground and. It's a shame he should be working more often. He's an extremely talented director. Oh, yeah, I love Joe Dante. Um, even Gremlins, I showed my little brother that um, for the first time, and I wasn't sure, like, how it was going to be just because, I mean, there is some pretty creepy moments in there. Um, but, you know, he loved it. He he yeah. la- he laughed at it. He was like, I mean, it's a horror movie, but like you said, it's got that quirky Joe Dante um, vibe to it as well. Yeah, he's a great um, comic director, and also I would think little kids would like that because the Gremlins are like little kids. They're kind of yeah. <laughs> mischievous troublemakers. It is violent, but the PG-13 rating was created for Gremlins and Indiana Jones and Jones, Temple yeah. because they were both uh, that elements of violence. Like when the Gremlin gets in the microwave and it blows yeah. up, uh, that freaked out the ratings board, but they got it oh, through, yeah. you know. Well, I still uh, remember the uh, the heart scene in Indiana Jones. And that still yeah. freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, that film I think is. So is <laughs> I wrote a, wrote a book on Spielberg, and I think that film is just so dark that it's yeah unpleasant to watch. You know, like when they're mm-hmm. pulling the heart out of the guy. But Gremlins is is done in a very exaggerated comical style. So right, um, even though it's you know some crazy stuff happens, it's 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 still funny. But at the they had a preview where people were walking out of Gremlins, and Steven Spielberg who produced it uh he was the executive producer he went to bat with them and made the studio keep in elements that i right. think the studio was nervous about it but it became a big hit you know yeah i think and gremlins uh, gremlins 2 is terrific i'd recommend people watch yeah. it called gremlins 2 the new yeah. batch it's <laughs> sort of a satire on the first one in a way you know yeah i love gremlins 2 as well um yeah. Yeah, Spielberg, I, I read um, a biography on him. His life is just, uh, I think it's, it's fascinating, too, um, just on how his he puts his life into, like, his films that he's working on. And uh, he sort of figured out the, you know, I'll do a big blockbuster, but then I'm going to do a serious Oscar contender, <laughs> which he still does. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah uh, he, did, you, did you pick up on that? He's very varied. Uh, you might have read my book. Well, there have been other mm-hmm. biographies of him, too, but I, I spent three years on a biography. Mm-hmm. Part of what I did was, nobody had ever done this before, just go talk to all the kids that worked on his amateur films. He did amateur films for 11 oh, okay. years before he made uh, professional films. And it was really a fascinating story of this kid filmmaker who made himself uh, a master filmmaker. You know, mm-hmm. Billy Wilder said... Steven Spielberg was a great director when he was 10 years old, which is actually sort of true. <laughs> and uh, so I interviewed all these people, and they all said to me, we've been waiting for 30 years for somebody to ring the doorbell. How come you know, nobody did? And uh, people had missed yep. the story. So, yeah, he puts in a lot of his, his uh, childhood fears and obsessions and anxieties. He's still a very anxious person. And, and that's one reason the films work, is he transfers them to the audience, and he yep. understands fear and um exhilaration you know, like E.T. is a very personal film you know even though right. it's like a science fiction film it's a very personal film but divorce and wanting a father figure in your life and things like that that related to kids and, and to adults too and uh, and then as you say he makes um, other kinds of films serious historical films and uh, you know I think he felt limited for a while by making films that were sort of about the kid in us, you know, and he wanted to yeah. go on to more adult subjects. But even, you know, I found that even at the beginning of his career, he was making some serious adult films like oh, uh, yeah. 
Sugarland Express is a very serious, tragic film. And uh, mm-hmm. um, he did a TV movie called, or a TV episode called Par for the Course, which is about a man dying of cancer. They did this when okay, he was yeah. like 20, 25 years old. And um, um, Duel is a great film, you know, a, a scary film. But, uh, you know, he, he hasn't just dealt with uh, lighthearted material. Yeah. He's been doing dark stuff for a long time. Oh, for sure. Like even uh, I remember like I just saw Close Encounters for this first time recently, and uh, just picking up on some of that stuff of like, oh wait, so he he leaves his family, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and he he has since said that he wouldn't have if he did that movie now he wouldn't have done it. But I think that's just that's uh, what Spielberg does is it's just a time capsule into his life. Um, it just makes it that much more interesting looking back at his movies, you know. Yeah, when you mentioned that, I, you said exactly what I was going to say to you. That um, yeah, he wouldn't do that today, but in a way, it's good that he did it then because that's the way he felt then. And uh, yeah, it's about a man who's you know, it's, people say Spielberg is the poet of suburbia, but mm-hmm. that he does not portray suburbia in a very good light. It's usually a very stifling uh, place right. of um, depression and anxiety, and, and that man is extremely. Uh, uh, unhappy with his family life and his wife doesn't understand him and he, he kind of goes crazy and, and uh, uh, leaves his family and that, that's the heart of the film. Spielberg has been dealing with serious family dysfunction his whole career. Um, right. You know, his, his parents divorced when he was young and that left a big mark on him that he still deals with in his films in one way or another and that's uh, I think it's it's kind of He's, he's mellowed out on that a little bit. He'll probably be dealing with that his whole life, you know. Right. We we uh, tend to do that. I mean, our, our childhood experiences stay with us. Right. And that, yeah, I think that's what's so great too is just, you know, I I can watch his I watched his movies as a kid and enjoyed it on that level. But like growing up, you get those those kind of darker elements too. Yeah. Um, and you can see the adult perspective when you get older, you know. Right, because you changed. It's interesting to me that you you change. The movies don't change, but you change, and you see movies in a very different light sometimes when you're exactly. older. Yeah. You know? Yep. You know. Um, and uh, so I understand that you're a teacher now, a professor now. Um, how has that experience been for you? Um, I know just as a student, um, I didn't even know that like majoring film was something that you could do. Um, oh, yeah. So it it ever since I've done it, I've just been like really happy it's been really rewarding for me um and then what advice do you give to like your students if they're you know trying to make it into the film industry like i am like as a writer right now as a critic so you're trying to make it as a screenwriter huh? um more as like a like a film critic um oh okay good um but uh i mean like i've i've always thought like i, I could do that um i if i wanted to but i don't know it's just such a daunting process, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a tough something. world. Um, I, I wasn't sure if you were a journalism major or a film major, but you're a, f- a film I'm a, major. Huh? I'm a I'm a double major, so um, oh, okay. uh, media, media studies and film studies. Oh, well, that's good. That's good to have yeah. both. Uh, well, it, it, you know, the thing that I tell students, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's always been tough to break excuse me, break into the film business because so many people want in, you know, it's Mm -hmm. it's considered glamorous, which it's really not, but um, it's more fun than say being a dentist, which is a more reliable way (laughs) to make a living and you can make good money off that. But I think it's maybe it's more fun in some ways, but it's also could be, can be very uh, traumatic and, and, and daunting. But the, the, the thing is, you have to make your own path. You, there's nobody waiting for you to walk in the door. And, you know, if you want to be a dentist, you go to dental school, you get a degree, and, and then you get a job. It's it's always easy. But, I yeah. mean, it's hard work to get there. But once you get there, there are jobs. But in the film business, you walk in, and they're, they're not looking for new people. You have to sell yourself to them, and you have to do something to stand out. And the way right. Spielberg did it was to make Amblin, which was a 35-millimeter calling card film that he made and he had made a lot of amateur films but nobody would look at them except one guy and he, he said you mm-hmm. got to make a film in 35 and and then he got that to the head of universal and uh but he had spent a lot of time making himself a good filmmaker so that once he had the opportunity 
you know, they saw his talent. So I think that's what I tell people is it's great to get the degree, learn what you can at school. Right. And But write on your own. There's nothing stopping you from writing a, a blog or doing a show like you're doing. Yeah. And write articles for magazines like I did when I started. Um, you know, I just planted articles in film magazines, and I was fortunate because in the late 60s, the whole field was just opening up, and they were really looking for films, f- film articles and books. And I didn't get paid much at the beginning, but you have to be willing to do that too. Yeah. But eventually you start getting paid something. And But it's still a hard business to make a living. A lot of newspapers have fired their film critics and yeah. fewer film books are published and it's a struggle. And so what I tell people, and Francis Ford Coppola came to our school, San Francisco State too, and he oh, said wow. the same thing is have a day job. You have to have a day job to support yep. yourself. And my day job was journalism. I was working for Variety, and um, I freelanced yeah. for a long time. Freelance writing is tough because you have the freedom, but um, financially it's a struggle. Yeah, and it's kind of lonely too. It's nice to have a place to go. <laughs> and so, so after I came up to San Francisco area in 2000. Uh, mm-hmm. job opened up at San Francisco State, and I, and I fortunately got it. So I, I like going in teaching and talking to students and showing films and teaching screenwriting and film history. And uh, uh, But I still write my books on the side, and teaching is a good profession because it gives you the opportunity to do your research and your writing and, and still have a regular paycheck, which is important to uh, you know keep the roof over your head and all that, so you have to. Uh, so it's good to have another occupation. And uh, I have a friend, Sam Ham, who wrote Batman, the Tim Burton film. And oh wow! Yeah. He, he comes to my screenwriting classes, and the first thing he says is, "Can you do anything else?" And some of the kids <laughs> will say, "Yeah, I can. I can do this. I can do that." And he says, "Well, <laughs> do it." You know. Yeah. Partly um, because it's just such a tough field. Um, you know, they're literally. Well, there are 10,000 members of the Writers Guild in Hollywood, and only half of us work in a given year. And these yeah. are the professional writers. And then there are probably hundreds of thousands of other people in L.A. alone that are trying to sell scripts. And yeah. then um, in the film criticism world, which I'm really happy when people want to get into it, there are film magazines and there are a lot of blogs. But the thing to do is create something unique, You know, your own blog, your own podcasts like you're doing and I have a couple of other friends one of my former students Pauline Lampert has a good uh-huh. uh, podcast called Flixwise mm-hmm. and she's a grad student in Madison and um, probably will be a film teacher and so she's created an identity for himself herself yeah. which is kind of what I did I made an identity for myself as a Wells expert and a Ford expert and things like that and one thing led to another and and uh um, but I had to, you know, but you you do what you love doing is, is another right. thing that's important. Don't do things just because you think it's trendy or because it's what they want. Just, you know, the things that are most successful that I've done are things that are quirky, things that I care about, articles I've written about films that nobody else was writing about or I interviewed people nobody else was interviewing. And um, I did books on people who were out of fashion and, yeah. help get them back into fashion, you know, things like that. So that's that's what it's all about is, is doing something you love and, and finding a way to make a living doing it at the same time. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, looking into the freelancing thing. Um, but, yeah, I'm also finding kind of the same thing you're talking about of definitely having a day job and uh, keeping my options open that way as well. Um, yeah, and- uh, day jobs, you know, Journalism, which is another problem because journalism is a shrinking field. But yeah. I have a relative who taught journalism, and I say, what do you tell your students about journalism? Can you really tell them to go into it? And he said, yeah, I do, because even though newspapers are going out of business and firing people, journalism is still alive. It's just changing. It's more online now, you know. Right. But they haven't quite figured out how to make a lot of money off online journalism, but they're working right. on it. Um, but journalism, teaching, those are good day jobs. And mm-hmm. they also are related to your field. In other words, I'm not working in something that's not related to film. I'm working in yeah. film. 
So I'm teaching exactly. a course, and so if I'm interested in, in writing about something, I'll teach a course, and, and I'll get the feedback from the students and uh, get to test my my ideas and things, you know, which is right. really important, you know. Um, uh, just a couple more questions. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, so you, like you said, you've written over 20 books, um, a bunch of biographies. Uh, which was the most challenging for you, and uh, which was the most rewarding? Well, I'm enjoying this discussion. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, no well, problem. the most challenging, and this relates to my current book, um, I did a biography of Frank Capra, the great director of um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, mm-hmm. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and Happened One Night. Right. And I found out that he was very different from his public image, that he had written an autobiography, which was really a, basically a lie start, <laughs> start to finish. And he was a very different kind of guy from what he led people to believe. And there were some very disturbing elements to the story that I found that he informed on some of his colleagues during the blacklist period and things. And so I spent seven years doing a biography of him which came out in 1992 called Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success. And I really mm-hmm. put everything into it that I couldn't have really um, found out everything. And, and, and I'm very proud of that book, but I had tremendous right. opposition. My original publisher, Knopf, and uh, Capra's um, uh, archivist, Janine Basinger from Wesleyan University, and mm-hmm. my editor at Knopf, Bob Gottlieb, were, were actually against me in trying to stop this book from coming out. Wow. which is kind of unusual. I mean, it does happen to other authors, but this was a real ordeal that went on for four, at least four years of that. Seven years was spent fighting a legal battle to get the book out. Mm-hmm. And so I've just written a book that is now out on Amazon called Frankly, colon, Unmasking Frank Capra. <laughs> and it's a, it's a large book about how I wrote this book under great duress and how I got it out. So it's it's a okay. memoir and it's a legal um, story and it's a kind of a mystery story and it's also kind of volume two of my Capra biography because it's part of Capra's mm-hmm. life too, and right. he was in the middle middle of all this. He was sort of ambivalent about this whole situation. Sometimes he was cooperative, sometimes he was not, and so I reveal a lot of new things about him in the book too. So so that was my hardest experience, but my most satisfying in a way too. And right. I got a second book out of it because, you know, the four years I spent were not wasted legally. I mean, I got the book out, and then I—that's the material for the second book. You know. Right. Um, any uh, any other projects you have out, or um, you know, you'd like people to check out? Well, I'm working on a critical study of Billy Wilder, who's one of my oh, favorite wow. directors. <clears throat> did some like it hot in the apartment and yep. I've been working on that for a while and that that'll be in the works for some time. And I, last year I did a book on Ernst Lubitsch, who was his, his idol and mentor, a great comedy director from Germany and America. It's called how did Lubitsch do it, which I was <laughs> very proud of. I spent about nine years on that. And so I've always got books in the works since 1963. Yeah. I've been working on books. Uh, that's what I enjoy doing the most because it's the most challenging and you have the, the most freedom, although as as the Capra experience uh, showed, you don't have complete freedom. You have people trying to stop you sometimes, but right. uh, you have more freedom than you do in journalism sometimes, and certainly more freedom than in the film business. All right. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Joseph McBride, for coming on and sharing your time. It's been an honor. I uh, wish you, you uh, continued success, and I hope to check out more of your work. Well, thank you, Francisco. It's great, and I look forward to hearing your show, and I really had a good time talking to you, so I really appreciate it. Wow, guys. Uh, Was that not incredible? I just want to say thank you once again to Joseph McBride for that awesome interview. Um, Once again, you can check out Orson Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind, on Netflix. And you can see a young Joseph McBride in there. You can also see him talking about the process of that film in the documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Also, I highly recommend Rock and Roll High School, which is your throwback Thursday pick of the week. Um, It is streaming free on Tubi. If you have the app with commercial ads, or you can check it out on Hoopla with a library card for free with no ads. So highly recommend that. I don't want to spend too much time because an hour is the max I like to keep episodes at. So I'll just keep this short. 
I'm going to see a screening of Pulp Fiction on the big screen for the first time tonight. I'm really excited about it. That is my second throwback Thursday pick. It is 25 years old. It was made, 25 years old. It was made in 1994. Quentin Tarantino's breakthrough film. I don't know what else needs to be said about this. Uh, Samuel Jackson tour de force performance. It brought John Travolta back from the dead. Um, you know, it just showed the world why Quentin Tarantino is just an anomaly and what he can do as a filmmaker. Um, it's still one of my favorite movies of all time. It's endlessly quotable. Uma Thurman, fantastic. Uh, broke through so many careers, if you think about it. Um, and it just it launched a new wave of independent films and filmmakers in the 90s. So I will keep you guys up to date on how the experience went. Um, but I have to leave pretty soon for that. So once again, thanks, Joseph McBride. Quentin Tarantino, I can't wait for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, go see those movies. They're all great. You cannot go wrong. And until next time, enjoy your mind trip, but don't trip on your mind.